0: from across the globe from the center of aerospace and now to you thank you for downloading the aero society podcast from the royal aeronautical society
1: so moving on to our speaker bob pierce is deputy associate administrator for aeronautics research at nasa headquarters He's responsible for leading aeronautics research mission strategic planning to guide the conduct of the agency's aeronautics research and technology programs, as well as leading NASA's aeronautics portfolio planning and assessments, mission directorate budget development and approval processes, and review and evaluation of all of NASA's aeronautics research missions programs. So, that's a really big long sentence. Lots of exciting things there. I'll shut up and pass on to Bob, who's going to talk about NASA aeronautics strategy and plans. Bob, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much. One thing I'm going to take away from this is I've got to rewrite that bio because it sounds really bad. It <laughs> sounds like I have a really boring job, but I don't. I have a really great job. It's a real pleasure to be here this evening to talk to you about what we're doing at NASA aeronautics. It's a... It's a mission directorate that's really devoted to advancing fundamental aeronautics capabilities for the nation and for the globe. And we're doing, and I, and I think that we are on the, that aeronautics in general, aviation in general, is, is on the verge of a, a number of key breakthroughs. that's really gonna change the face of aeronautics and aviation going forward. I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about that. And at the end, I hope you have a few questions and we can have some, some dialogue and so forth, so. With that, so just to, to orient you a little bit and, and I'm sure many if not all of you in here um, have a, a, you know, probably pretty good perspective and a good sense of where the state of aviation is today. So this this chart shows, and uh, hopefully you can, yeah, I guess it looks pretty good up there. Um, this shows the commercial transport market and sort of the, the, the Changes that are happening and, and coming, and so forth. So, I think uh, the most basic that, that uh, the thing that's happened over the last few years is, as you know, Airbus has acquired the C-series of Bombardier, and Boeing is acquiring Embraer's commercial units. So, you all know about the duopoly, and now so we're going to have a duo duopoly, right? So now we get the, the large commercial and the and the regionals are going to be paired up, and so forth. But at the same time. If you look at where the market is growing, the market is growing in the Asia Pacific region, and so those countries, and especially China, where most of that Asia Pacific market is growing, doesn't want to be just a purchaser of, of aeronautical and aviation products, right? They want to be a developer of those products as well, and so they're developing their C919 single aisle, and they're working with Russia on a twin aisle development as well. So the market is is going to there's going to be more um, more dynamics in terms of competition and so forth, and at least um, in the u s the the assumption is that while it's going to take a little while for China to get to the level where they can really compete on a on the, the same level as an Airbus or a, a Boeing, they are going to get there and so that is a, a future that's coming at the same time there's opportunity to to add technology and to add capability to the aviation system to take it to another level one of those opportunities is to get back into supersonic um, air travel and air transportation. There's a lot of really um, tough problems that have to be solved. we got to tackle the sonic boom, we need to tackle landing and takeoff noise, we've got to tackle efficiency issues and so forth, but it is coming. In the US um, there's several companies including Lockheed and Boeing and some smaller um, organizations that are actually have Um, New vehicles on the drawing board, going to bring those to flight test and so forth. What NASA is doing is we're looking at tackling those problems I just talked about. And I'll talk a little bit about what we're doing. The most exciting part right now is tackling the sonic boom issue. Um, How can we soften the boom so it would be acceptable to fly over land supersonically? So I'll talk a little bit about that. The other, another big area is electric propulsion so there's a lot of movement in electric propulsion especially at the small end right so the the, the um, electric vertical takeoff and landing ev toll for air taxis a uh, one where you're seeing a tremendous amount of innovation maybe as many as 150 or more um, unique designs that are out there today most of those will, will go the way of the dinosaur they're not going to make it but there's some really capable systems that are being developed and and that's a real possibility and i'll tell you about things we're doing there but electric propulsion that's, that's a couple hundred kilowatts we need to get to megawatts if we're going to have it make an impact at the commercial scale. So I'll talk about that as well. At the same time, if you get out of that, that sort of that really large commercial market, you start looking at UAS and then where we're going relative to urban air mobility. So we're actually moving people and, and larger, um, larger freight. Um, shorter distances, either in an intra-urban or in an inter-urban in smaller cities, th- you know, kind of thin-haul, if you know that term, sort of short-haul, thin-haul, so small city pairs. You know, can we develop systems that can actually taxi or move people shorter distances and change the equation for urban mobility and inter mobility um, going forward? If you look at some of the cities around the globe, as you know, I mean, they're, you know, even London is is it took us, uh, we, we visited the, the, uh, the Royal Air Force Museum today. It took us almost an hour by metro to get there, right? What if we could have taken an air taxi and gotten there in 10 minutes? You know, so there's opportunities in in these really large urban areas to move people differently, and that's one of the things we're working on. You can see on this um, urban air mobility chart the so just some of the innovation that's going on, and you can see there are smaller um, smaller startups, new startups, but there's also the, the large traditional companies like the Boeings um, and Airbus and so forth, Rolls-Royce, and, and that are get that are in this market as well. So, and so it's a recognition once the the large guys get in it, it's a re- recognition that there's really something here that be, they can close on a vehicle and they think there's a market that that can be served. And so one of the things, so as we look at this market and you can see at the bottom, uh, we did a study through McKinsey and and, um, and Booz Allen Hamilton in terms of, well, what what does that market really look like? And it could be in, just in the US, just in the, the in 15 cities, you know, by around 2030, if you can solve the problems, which is no, no insignificant um, thing, you can move maybe 500 million uh, U.S. package delivers and 750 million annual passenger trips. So it's a big billions and billions kind of mar- uh, market that, that could take place, and that's just the US. So spread that over the entire globe when you're talking, you know, 10. Twenty times um, that level of potential market, so it's it's a big draw. So that's a that's a bit on the what the landscape is. So it's a is a lot to a lot of opportunity to capture going forward in aviation. It's not sort of the the uh, sort of the way we've thought about um, aeronautics and aviation um, up to this point. I think there's a lot that um, a lot of of new opportunity. And new capabilities that can be brought to bear against those new opportunities. So let me talk some then that against, so the, the, we've built a strategy. We rolled this out in 2013, so some of you may be uh, familiar with it. And we've been executing this strategy since about that time. And and within that strategy, we've got some really big kind of mission focus areas, and I'll talk through those. But just as a as an overview, the way we've looked at it is in, and these kind of six thrust areas against a couple of mega drivers, right? So the big mega drivers are global. This, the aviation has been global for a long time, but if you look at the, it's not just from a transportation perspective. It's from a manufacturing perspective. It's from a mobility perspective. You know, the world wants to move, and so that's, that's a big driver. It's got to be sustainable. Um, we, you know, we we've been paying attention to what's happening um, in Europe and the dynamics here. And we know that there's a, a sustainability equation that has to be met if we're going to be able to move forward. And so we have a focus there. And transformative. There's just a tremendous number of technologies that have come along that have come along outside of the, the the traditional aviation disciplines, right? The kind of things you would find in an aerospace school, right? So, you know, when we start talking about autonomy, which is a key enabler for you know for especially if you look at urban air mobility and small, um, you know, small UAS or or UV toll and so forth, those have to be mostly autonomous if they're going to be able to actually meet a market. But even the large vehicles need to have greater autonomy, focused on safety and so forth to meet the, the needs of the future. So, but that's not something that, that started inside aeronautics, but it's something we need to leverage and take advantage of and become good at. So that notion of transformative is really important. Convergent, you know, we talk a lot about convergence between technologies. And so what we did was put together these six thrusts. Most of them are pretty, um, self-explanatory, but safe, efficient growth in global operations, that's what we're doing to support FAA, ICAO, and others in terms of how we move the air traffic management of the system. What's that look like? How does it integrate across the globe? It's a trajectory-based system. It's highly automated. And we've been doing a tremendous, I won't go too much into this, but we've been doing very large ATM demonstrations within the U.S. that demonstrate the ability to to very smoothly fly from gate to gate an integrated trajectory that just takes a lot of inefficiency out of the system saves a tremendous amount of fuel and and a good amount of time for the traveling public and we have those those demos in a, in operation today one especially at Charlotte Airport that we put in we were operating as a demo and just as a as sort of a, a you know sort of a little factoid or um, story around that as um, we have a we have an unfortunate tendency every once in a while to to um, have get government shutdowns and and so we were going to actually, because this was just a demo, um, we were going to shut the demo down for that, for that period of time. And, and both the FA and airline said, you can't shut that down. It's really working well. We're saving. I mean, the airline said, we've, we've you know, and this was just after a couple of months. So, you know, we've gotten used to this. We've, we've integrated into operations. We need to have this, this capability. So even though it's just a demo, it's, you know, these, they've been really successful and they're really making an impact. So that's safe, efficient growth in global operations. Talked a little about commercial supersonics. I'll talk more about that. Um, ultra-efficient commercial transport. So this is, this is, you know, how do we fundamentally look at airplane design, aircraft design, in a way that that creates greater efficiency. So we've been working on things like blended wing body type designs, truss brace wings to get ultra ultra-high aspect ratios and so forth challenging the dominant design of a tube and wing, right? And so that's been a really, um, we've got a, a lot of great partnership with industry, but it's really challenging, right? To change that dominant design of a tube and wing is, is not something the industry is gonna do lightly. So we've gotta go through a lot of experiment and test and analysis to show that the payoff um, is worth the, the risk and investment. So that, but that's going really well, and I'll show a little bit on that. The transition alternative propulsion energy is all around, right now it's all around electric. We did quite a bit of work in biofuels, um, collaboratively with DLR and others in Europe and so forth. So that's that's gone um, well. And we're now doing a lot of innovation around electric. And like I said, kind of megawatt scale is the real challenge. In-time system wide safety assurance is really around that, you know, aviation is extraordinarily safe. And it got there because every accident that happened was analyzed and assessed. And the, the, the root causes were fixed. But it's so safe now, we've gotta be prognostic. We've gotta be looking at the data and doing the data analytics and looking for issues before they become incidents and accidents. So, so that's bringing a lot of AI, data analytics and so forth. You know, Moving our information into a, into a shared environment so that it can be analyzed and so forth. And so some of it's a technical issue, but a lot of it is, how do we get to the point where we can safely share information? Um, across airlines, across the FAA, across um, across the globe, and then assured autonomy. So, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But you know, a lot of these business models they need to be more highly autonomous in order to close the business case. But it's got to be assured, right? It's got to be safe and it's got to be secure if it's going to be make its way into operation. So that's a just in a nutshell. Um, the, the fundamentals and against these we have what we call outcomes and critical commitments that, that we focus our research on in order to give it that focus in order to give it a timeline to say let's solve this problem let's solve it by this date and you know it's research so sometimes we don't always get there but that but putting that that line in the sand, you know kind of that flag in the ground really makes an impact in terms of organizing our researchers and getting this, these things done. So it's been really effective. Okay, let me talk a little bit about supersonics and one of the exciting things we're doing relative to low-boom flight demonstrations. So the challenge here is that, as you know, there's just a prohibition against commercial supersonic flight over land because of the effect of the boom on communities. But if we're going to make a commercially viable supersonic transportation system, we have to overcome that. We've got to get to a level of sonic boom that communities find acceptable. Now, we've done a lot of work in the lab and wind tunnels and through analysis and so forth to be able to know we can shape a vehicle now to get a, a much softer boom. We, you know, and sometimes we call it uh, a sonic thump, you know, so it's, you still, if you're listening, you can hear it. Uh, but if it's, you know, if you're not paying attention, you may not hear it, that kind of thing. So. But it's about it's about 75 um, uh, dNL and it's and it's shaped so you don't get that sharp, you know, you don't get that sharp um, impact of the, the the noise and so forth. So it's a it's a smoother and it's and it's a lower level. I think I think Concord is around 105 dB, something like that. So just to give you a sense of the the difference. So this is the X59. It's it was an airplane specifically designed to produce that noise level to produce like a 75 dB. With that shape with a with the soft shape of the of that overpressure um, and what we're going to do is fly that over communities and see what people think <laughs> now it's 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 actually kind of challenging right you know because you know d- d- doing surveys and so forth we're bringing a lot of people we don't know how to do that very well we're bringing a lot of experts that know how to do that and i'll talk we did a an experiment with an f eighteen i'll exp- explain that to, to see if we can really do this community survey thing so but you can see in the, in the lower right-hand corner um, that's the, one of the spars for the wing going in. So we're actually uh, starting to, to build that airplane right now out of Skunk Works, um, and we'll have this. Hopefully, this airplane will be up and flying in uh, in early 2022, and then we'll we'll do the envelope expansion, the airworthiness, we'll do the the, the uh, acoustic validation of the vehicle, and then we'll start the the test campaign. Oh, I should just point out the. The, the upper right-hand uh, photo there, um, you see that's, it's an in-flight Schlieren technique. So many of you know that you, you, in wind tunnels, you can do a, a Schlieren photography to, to visual, visualize the, the, uh, the shock waves coming off the vehicle. What we really wanted to do though is be able to do that in-flight because what we want to do is, is do that with the X-59. So when we do the, the acoustic validation, we can actually image the shockwave. So if, if the noise is a little bit off, it'll help us diagnose what what the issues are. So we did a, and so this is with a. I, there's a couple different techniques. I believe this one is using the sun as kind of a the the backlighting, and then we had another vehicle with the Schlieren um, equipment, and then the vehicles fly overhead, and and you get this, and you get this image. It was make it. I make it really easy, sound easy. It's really hard to to make this work, but it's it's worked beautifully, and so. We, you know, what we've done is we've compared this against CFD, and we actually sh- show features in the shocks that we're not actually fully seeing in CFD. So it's it's really pretty incredible what's, what we're able to do there. So that's a uh, a capability we'll have going forward into the flight program. Okay. So I told you about. Uh, so the whole point is to try to get the community response. So. So the folks out at Armstrong, which is out in the, the high desert, which you know, we have a couple of F-18s and so forth, they do a lot of the flight tests for us. Um, they developed a, a, a technique where they can take one of the F-18s and do a dive maneuver. And they, they, go, they just go through the, the, through the you know, supersonic and then they pull up. And so right underneath the aircraft is a really loud boom. But as they pull up, the sh- shock emanates and it kind of goes you know over, over, over land so you can kind of see that, um, you know, the F-18 will do a dive, and then, uh, then the sound propagates over land, and it's, it turns out that this, the sound you get here, the sound here is really intense, but the sound here emulates about the level of the noise. Now, the shape is not quite right, but it emulates the level of noise. So what we wanted to do is, and we've been doing this out, out at Armstrong, we needed to do it in a communi- community to see if we could do the community response, see if that would actually work, if we could get people to participate and, and we could get really good data. So we did this in Galveston, Texas, which is out not too far from the Johnson Space Center. And so Johnson actually helped us a lot because they knew the community and, they, and were able to work with them and so forth. I got to tell you, it went really well. We were able to to get a, about a 500 um, participants in this in this survey, and they, and we did this over th- I don't know four or five days, several you know wrote you know several uh, of these maneuvers a day to get a series of booms um, over the Galveston area and got the responses back and so forth, and we really got we learned a lot about how to do these community responses, and, but and the, and the response was the, the community the, the sort of the larger community response was such that they said, "Hey, when you get the x 59 can you come back and do it again?" because they really liked us doing it so so it really worked well, so. Now that's, it's one of those things, right? You, got, you know, you want folks to be aware, and you want them to not hate you for doing this, but you also don't want to bias the, the results. But, but so far so good. Where we're, that's going in a good direction. So, so that's um, that's what I was going to say about supersonics. In addition to the low boom, and like I said, we're we're, we're working with ICAO. So, so it'll take us several years, and we'll get to we'll bring all this data ICAO and FAA, and hopefully we'll get a standard, and then industry can design to that standard. In addition, we're we are at a lower level working the landing takeoff noise because. The super, you know, you've got a lower bypass um, engine in there and so forth, and higher jet noises, and so, and the, and the inlets are such that you're getting more inlet, you know, more fan noise. So there there's, tends to be higher noise for a supersonic aircraft design on the landing takeoff area. So we're also working some of that, because the FAA's got to get those standards, and the ICAO's got to get those standards in place as well. So, those are, so this is the top priority we're doing the landing takeoff, and then once we get through that, we can start looking at issues of higher efficiencies and so forth to make this something. And we're working more than, you know, the, the first designs will be, you know, business jets, obviously, because people are willing to pay. But our focus is really on transport class, you know, making this a more um, general part of our air transportation system. Again, the distances that, you know, I, I'm sure many of you experienced, you know, um, some of these very long distances where you're sitting on an airplane for 14 hours is not fun, right? So um, so if we can if we can speed that up, if we can the, the world together even more than we can today, I think that's going to be a, a great step forward. Okay, let me talk a little bit about air, electric aircraft propulsion. So what are we trying to do here? We're trying to do a couple things. Electric um, in and of itself um, is a is a, you know, electric motors can be made extremely efficient, but up to this point, you know, power density hasn't been a big thing because the things sit on the ground, right? So if we're going to get them in an airplane, we've got to get the power densities way up, and we've got to keep the efficiency way up. When we look at it, you've really got to get, like, 98%, 99% efficiencies through every part of the architecture. So the motors, the, the power electronics, um, the anything that you, you know, any... the. the, the Anything you're going to drive, the pulling the power, a lot of this, you have to pull power off your turbofans. that's going to be done very efficiently. So there's an efficiency equation to this, because each step, if, you, if, you, if it's not highly efficient, the overall architecture efficiency is going to go way down. Right. And for, for a large scale, for like a 737, a 320 class, which are, I think, there are around 22, 23, 24 megawatts of installed power equivalent, right? That's what the engines generate. So you got to get, you know, kind of multi-megawatt levels of of power if you're going to do something significant. And significant means a couple things. One is you could use the the electric motor if you've got some other storage, so maybe if you've got some batteries and so forth in a hybrid configuration that allows you to actually Better optimize your turbofan because you can use the electric to augment your top, of, you know, your takeoff and top of climb, so that the so you're getting the, the extra boost of power from your electric motor, and so you can shrink your turbofan a little bit, right? And it operates over a smaller range, and so it becomes a much more reliable and 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 requires less maintenance. So that's a probably the first. I think probably the first um, concept out of the box is going to be something like that. Something that's a little bit more advanced, if you look at the, this guy here, it's got a tail cone at the end, right? So basically, you're putting another fan on the vehicle, so now you've, you've increased your effective bypass ratio, and you're, and you're pulling the boundary layer off the, off the, the vehicle itself, right? So you're, you're pulling the boundary layer off, so you're improving your aerodynamics and you've got slower flow going into your fan, so you can get more fan efficiency that way as well. So it has, you know, so we've calculated, you know, depending on how that's done, you know, you can get maybe three or four or 5% more efficiency out of the airplane by doing that that kind of a configuration now. It's a little bit further out probably, a little more risk in terms of doing that, and we're still doing testing on that, that boundary layer ingestion. Um, concept. The, the fan face sees more turbulence, obviously, because it's sucking in the boundary layer, so it's got to be able to operate um, in a, um, you still have to have fan stability in the face of uh, that, that turbulent flow, so there's a lot of issues there. Um, and as I said, you know, the, there's a lot of difficulties. You can kind of see some of the areas that we're looking at from a TRL maturation, the weight efficiency, power distribution, the turbine engine integration, you know, where do you pull the power off? How do you pull that much power Not, and and make sure you keep a an efficient and stable uh, turbine engine, EMI? You know, one of the issues is, of course, when you get to altitude, you know, air is a natural insulator. So all of a sudden, arcing and, and things become a problem as you run very high power, high voltages and so forth. So the materials, the insulator materials are really important. But, of course, you want the temperatures to stay low to make sure your efficiency stays high. So. You want to insulate against arcing, but you you know, you don't want to insulate the you know the heat into the into the wiring as well. So there's a lot of issues around thermal management and energy storage and so forth. So so we've been we now have um, just from a I don't think I have the maybe I have a chart here. Yeah. So and I probably talked about all this. This is uh yeah, so I'd, I probably should have flipped to this chart. The one thing I did want to show on on this chart, so you can see the the, um, this was a, a pretty, uh, this is a first of its kind test in, the, in one of the Glen facilities, Glen Research Center, one of the wind tunnels, where we actually were able to, this, it's a boundary layer ingestion, so this is the, the tunnel floor, and so the air is heading into the, the fan that way, and we were able, through some really fancy plumbing, able to modulate the size of the boundary layer going into the fan face, and actually shape the boundary layer as well, So. We were able to do a lot of parametric testing of different boundary layers going into the fan and then testing a well we had a lot of instrumentation obviously in there and so forth so we could see and we were doing that to 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 really work the 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 um uh, the fan stability and so forth making sure we had a a very um a favorable fan design that could that could take the the you know the distorted flow the other one is is this, this is we call this the nasa electric aircraft test facility um, this is actually a cutaway, um, just to show the size. This is a 737. You see the, so this is just an image, right? The tail cone and so forth, where the turbine. It, so this is the size of the. This is an actual building. It's an image of, you know. But obviously, this is a, this is a building out at, at the Plumbrook facility out of Glen. Um, we we're able to run um, as much as 20 to 30 megawatts in this facility because it was designed for other purposes, and but it has a tremendous amount of installed power available. And it's got a, an altitude chamber, so we can actually put the motors into the altitude chamber, bring it up to 30,000, 40,000 feet. And we've run a, mega, um, a megawatt motor already at full speed, full power um, in that facility. So we've made a lot of advancements. So this is on the ground. So the next step is... I don't have it in there, sorry. Um, the next step is actually bringing this to flight. So we're working on... Doing some risk reduction right now. To, to look at what technical issues have to get to flight in order to re- retire the risk, right? Because we can do a lot on the ground through wind tunnels and through our neat facility, but we're going to have to get some of this to flight. So, so that's our next step is to do that. And so we're looking at in the mid, you know, sort of early mid 20s to actually have a megawatt um, with in partnership with with a number of of industry folks, all the engine companies are they've they've gone from sort of skeptical to they've accelerated and they want to get to flight as quickly as possible on this so we're working with a few of the engine companies to see how we get to flight by 22 you know 2022 or 2023 the last big area I want to talk about is is back to that urban air mobility so this is a uh, and if you want to know more so I brought Davis Hackenberg with me he's sitting right here so he's uh he spent the last Year or more with a team of NASA folks Sort of examining every aspect of urban air mobility and why is that right because you can look at how Complex this is we're talking about ubiquitous air taxis air shuttle public services and so forth It's like designing an entire air transportation system all over again, right? so you got to think about every piece of how you build the vehicle, how you certify a vehicle, how do you build an air traffic management system that allows this to happen, how you do safety, um, how you manage fleets. There's noise is going to be huge issues. So you have to think about all of these issues. So I, we had a whole team multidisciplinary look at, sitting down saying, okay, this is everything you got to do. And then we, we worked with industry to say, okay, well, they want to do this how fast do they want, you know, what their business cases or what are their use cases and how fast do they want to get to those. And obviously they want to get there a lot faster than than, you know, left our, our own devices. We'd, we, you know, we'd probably tack 10 years onto what they want to do, but they want to go fast. And so we're going to see if we can go fast and we'll see how far we get. So they want to get to a pretty mature state um, by around 2028. 20, you know, so about 10 years from now. and that's, And that's you know flying in an urban core maybe hundreds of vehicles you know thousands of operations on a daily basis do I have that right I got that right okay thanks so this is this is a really challenging and so we're going to do it really differently this is one of the messages right we we're trying to learn to work differently cuz this these the, the the folks that are coming in here the googles and amazons and and Joby's and all these folks, they don't they didn't come from aviation. They don't get why it takes so long to do stuff in aviation, right? They come from IT in like, you know, 18 months. What's wrong with 18 months? Why can't we do it, right? Now, they're learning, right? They're saying, okay, I get it. All right, there's safety stuff. We got to do that right, you know, and so forth. And they, you know, and I, I say that kind of flippantly, but they actually are, are they, they, they've they come a long way, but they still want to push hard, right? They still want to get this thing thing going. So we're looking at how to do this. So I, as I mentioned, these are all the issues that, you know, and underneath this, you know, so we 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 broke it into these five areas, community integration, air traffic, airspace systems, vehicle development, and, and vehicle management operations. And then all of the, you know, in each one of these things, there's four or five sub areas. And then there's these co- cross cutting things like security and noise and autonomy and so forth. And then underneath all that, there's, you know, Three more layers of WBS, right? Uh, of issues and so forth that you got to contend with. So that's what I'm saying. This is like an entire aviation system, like that we got to think through. And you know what, what? And the FAA is saying, look, we got a regulatory system. If you think you're going to, we're going to put together an entirely new regulatory system for this, you're out of your mind. It'll take us like you know, another hundred years. So we're going to take. But we're going to give you some flexibility, right? Take the current regulatory system. You come up with new means, you know, new standards, new means of compliance that that you can prove that you're going to meet the safety standards and safety regulations and so forth. We're going to work with you. So so a lot of this is also taking all of that work and all those issues and then putting it into, okay, here's kind of the, the regulatory system that we kind of have that we can work with, you know, given some flexibility and so forth. And how do we make all that work and make it all work relatively quickly? So. So what we're doing and one of the, is and this is kind of the novel thing is to say look that that's a huge integration problem right and it's one that involves industry both vehicle pr- providers as well as system um, system operators like atm system o- type operators which we've we've built up through some of our us uas activities involves the faa even involves our department of homeland security and others because they got to approve these things flying around um, In urban cores and so forth and so we said okay well let's let's build a proving ground basically let them come in we're gonna we'll build scenarios and 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 requirements and so forth and you come in and we're gonna step through this at a relatively rapid pace right we'll start at a at a what we call a grand challenge grand challenge one two three four we'll we'll just continue to, to up the ante in terms of the level of integration the level of challenge and so forth but you guys come in do it. And at the same time, we have our research portfolio. So we're working on, you know, fundamentals and noise and and new air traffic management techniques. And so we're going to partner with industry folks, work those issues, and then they can take those technologies well and do the integration, bring it to grand challenge, bring it to the proving ground. And then that will be tied to a set of use cases that are unlocked over time. And so by the time you get out to 2028, if this all works at this, the pace that industry wants to go, they'll be able to do, as I described, urban core operations in the hundreds of aircraft and thousands of operations. Um, and now, it'll also open up a whole bunch of other use cases, emergency um, operations, um, uh, transport between small um, urban cores and so forth. So there's a lot of other things that could become possible. So the way this will work is people will bring vehicles. They'll bring their airspace management capabilities. We'll put, the, we'll put this pr- proving ground together. We'll put the NASA the inter- interfaces. The testbed LVC is live virtual constructive environment, so it enables us to do simulated operations in addition to live operations and put them together. Um, and then what are the, we'll develop the safety integration scenarios. And we'll also have stakeholders, including cities, right? So what is, how do cities want this to work? They have a lot of a lot of um, um, requirements that they're going to have that, that they want satisfied as well in, in terms of noise or in terms of safety or in terms of ability to to manage these operations so we need them in here as well so this is kind of a really big picture is how we're going to bring that together like i said we're going to step through it we'll start simple and then we'll continue to up the ante every eighteen months to a couple years until we get to like i said around to twenty we're we're aiming for like our ultimate you know kind of a what we call gc 3 um, in about the 2026 and that'll unlock that that um, that that level of of operation i talked about now that's not even the ultimate right there's the industry wants to go beyond that but we think that's a a reasonable line in the sand that 2028 time frame so so this is this is really interesting but it's really challenging our workforce and our ability to you know, how we do business and how we work with industry. So that's kind of one, in addition to the fact that this is really cool, and urban air mobility is a really awesome thing, and we're going to try to make that work, and there's there really is something in there I think that's going to work this time. You know, this, these ideas of, you know, um, air taxis have been around for a while, but I think this this time, I think there's we have the technology, we know how to do this, and I think this is going to work. But it's also, it's really interesting in terms of the way it's, it's forcing us to work differently, become more agile, become more flexible. So now it's also pushing i'm just going to give you one chart on this it's also pushing on you know if, if we have these vehicles operating in, you know less than a couple thousand feet in this really different way we've got our our traditional vehicles operating you know a, a class you know class c class you know b class a airspace and we've got small uas operating around and so forth we can't do air traffic management writ large the same way and so we've we've already gone through i mentioned this i won't go through in any detail but we've we've done our traditional the, the trajectory based operations we're finishing that up this year or in 2020 that's going to be done so that's that's gate to gate totally you know an integrated trajectory um, highly efficient so forth that's all being transitioned much of it's already been traced in the faa industry and so that's being implemented and we've done this small UAS low-altitude stuff. So below 400 feet, we just finished this TCL4, which is flying small UASs at low altitude in two cities, and, and we did it in Corpus Christi, Texas, and we did it in Reno, Nevada, downtown urban areas. We flew several hundred uh, flights in both of those, plus you know the, you know probably four or five hundred additional simulated flights. So we got really high density um, going in each of those urban cores. And that was our, and we've, and that was the ultimate, you know, the the fourth of a series of these TCLs that basically built out in partnership with 20, you know, 30 different um, partners and probably five or six folks that actually want to run this. They want to run these UTM systems commercially. That's been played out over the last five years. So now we've got this as well. We've got these UTM systems, what Europe calls U-space. These UTM sp- systems and the, the commercial providers that have this technology and are going to be qualified to do it. And we've got our next gen, our, our trajectory-based management system. Now we've got to put it all together and what we into you know a, a, a future operational environment that's going to be really challenging and really complex. It's going to include diverse operations. It's all going to be it's, the service-oriented architectures. Basically, we've got to put as much as possible in the, into the cloud, right? And so I, I was just talking to FA the other day. And they're, you know, they're, some of their new automation platforms, which are, you know, they're, they're closed architectures and so forth. They want to pull as much functionality as possible, put it into the cloud. It's not going to be the, the core safety functions yet, but at least, the, you know, some of the other services and so forth put in the cloud, make, it a, make these application-based. And so that starts to bring everything together into a common environment. And that's what's, and, that, and it's gotta be, in many of these, these applications, are gonna have to be, have an autonomy backbone. So it's not gonna be a lot of people telling other folks what to do um, over this network. It's gonna be automation and autonomous um, type, uh, type applications that take this data in, do the analysis, and, 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 and send back out the, the, the instructions and the and, um the, you know, the, the results of the automation and so forth. The other big piece, so, so that's kind of the operational side, right? So the, it's got to operate much more like that UTM system than the, the traditional, right? Because it's going to be, like I said, it's going to be cloud-based and so forth. That's the operational end. The other end is, that's just a data platform, right? It's just an information environment, and it's got an operational role. But there's an analytical end to it, right? All that data is hugely valuable, and we have to mine it for what are you know how to become even more efficient so let's apply artificial intelligence to look at how people are operating and how we can do even more efficient but even more important how do we analyze it to understand what's going on in the system from a, a safety perspective reliability and safety perspective and so forth so that we know we're anticipating where there's risks and hazards cropping up in the system in in an in-time way right whether that's real time or if it's it's you know downstream in terms of changes in procedures or or the automation itself, we fix those things so we don't get to the point where there's incidents and accidents. So that's really the, the focus, the, the future of ATM. The last thing I want to talk about is, is how we work with universities, right? So, so we've had, you know, we've, you know, NASA Aeronautics has been around for 100 years, right, and we've worked with universities for 100 years. And we've grown used to working with a set of, you know, the set of universities, great universities. The MITs and Georgia Techs and, and Stanford's of the world and so forth, and we've we've often sort of made them almost sub pro you know like uh, subcontractors to our projects and say go fix this little thing and so forth. We said the universities came and says but we can do a lot more than that. Why you know why don't you give us um, more freedom and and more money too? But you know that's okay. So but they said okay. The money comes with a stipulation, right? And the stipulation is look, we got to. I told you about our strategic plan. I said, look at our strategic plan. And you go out and you 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 tell us what you think the hardest problem is and go solve it. And you go get you good university partnership, you bring industry in, and we'll give you a couple million dollars a year for 3 or 4 years and you just you, and you prove to us you can solve that problem and then you transfer that that information, that technology and we'll see what happens. So, we've done this. We've had we just awarded, we just we one award is is in operation. We just awarded a second and we got a third um, in solicitation right now. so these are the you can see the kind of the the, the um, universities peppered on this map in addition to some com- some companies right and they're the but in this case, those companies are sub to the university, which is a prime, which is also a little bit different. O- oftentimes we get our universities in under uh you know an industrial prime so and you can sort of see some of the you know, we've got Arizona State University, which is not a traditional, you know, university for us. Um, Boise State University. We've got, you know, Vanderbilt. Others, I mean, that aren't the traditional folks, but they've been coming in with really good ideas and they've been getting awarded. So, like I said, I mean, I think I already said this. So I, won't, I won't belabor it, but tell them, you know, we got a strategy. You help us ch- achieve it. And the other thing we've we've done is we said it's not enough for you to just kind of come in with a great idea. You need to come in with a team. So I don't want just one university, one department, one professor, you know. I want a team because there's no way you know a single unit is going to solve a big systems problem, right? So come in with a team that's got all the capability to solve a systems problem. And you've got to promote the next generation of engineers. So I, we want to see a lot of students, both at the both undergraduate graduate, but we also push them to say get down to your the local community colleges, even the K through 12, figure out a way to, to make them part of the process from a, from a STEM engagement perspective. We want a transition plan. We want to see that you're gonna how you're gonna to execute this project, deliver something in a reasonable TRL, and transition it to somebody who's gonna can actually take an application. Put it in a global context. We don't want you know something that's hey, I got this great idea. You show us why that idea is important in the context of the, of the, um, of the strategy. And then peer review is, was just, you know, oftentimes we were the peer reviewers, right? We said, no, like, you guys come up with your peer review committee. So this has really led to a really, um, a really good outcome that we hadn't fully anticipated was because they went out and got a lot of industry folks on their peer review panels. And in some cases, like in the University of South Carolina, they were doing, um, doing communications technology. They had Boeing on their peer review, and Boeing said, that's great stuff, I want to put on our, our eco demo. So now, next year, they're going to have their technology on one of the Boeing eco demos. Um, Ohio State is, is working on electric propulsion. And you know, another one of the companies came in and said, the way you do battery management is better than anything we've seen. We, we want that. So, so having these peer reviews, having these industry folks on the peer reviews that they put together, all of a sudden, is creating value along the way. And, and so the universities are really valuing it too. And so this is, so I won't go through all this, but these are, this is round one and round two. We did, um, we did five and then, then just the way the budget worked out, we were able, able to do three. But after that, we actually increased the budget because this was, like I said, this round three, we we've got almost a hundred, you know, a hundred proposals in, and we probably have enough money to award now four or five more. And these run, like I said, you know, three, four, five years, a couple million dollars a year. So we actually increased the budget because this is really working so well. But it's, again, it's changing the way our relationship to the university system by giving the universities the flexibility to solve problems, challenging them to bring in more disciplines, more students and so forth to do things differently, develop that next generation of of leaders for these new challenges. For electric propulsion, for urban mobility, for things that, you know, aren't necessarily on the at least as far as I know, aren't in the syllabus today, but, but are gonna be the things that these engineers have to, have to solve in the future. So with that, um, again, I, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and tell you a little bit about some of the things we're doing. We are, you know, we really think that 2040 is kind of that, you know, 2030 to 2040 is kind of that, that, that vision point for us. We really think that the system, we're gonna see some major transformative changes. We're going to see the electrified aircraft propulsion in the subsonic airliner market. We're going to see urban air mobility. We're going to see renewed um, supersonic transportation and so forth. So we're going to see some real big changes. I fully believe it. Um, we all are part of that, that change. We're all part of this industry, this community and so forth. And we're really excited to, to, be, uh, to do our part, to take some leadership to make all this happen. So with that, I have no idea. I probably went way over my my time, a lot of time, but... but, Yeah. (laughs) But thank you very much. From
0: across the globe. From the centre of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.